Hello there, welcome to episode 84 of Right Where You're Sitting Now, the podcast for sittingnow.co.uk, where you can find all of our old episodes. Um, I went to the darkest depths and I recovered a fiend, a fiend by the name of Mark. Welcome back to the show, you haven't been on for one episode. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're serving you're serving the general populace now with the what they, you know, what they need. What they need and the and the high quality I I, I bring to this uh, this um, uh, transmission the metaphysical bants we are going to enter bring. the 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 purple the mauve zone actually uh, I've, I've, yes we've plumbed the mauve zone and we're going to invite you into into enjoying that experience with us because why who are we speaking to Ken Today we are speaking to a returning guest and uh, a firm favourite of ours, uh, Mr. Michael Staley, uh, head of Starfire Publishing and um, a Typhonian Thelemite. And, and close associate of uh, the, the late, the great, late, great uh, Kenneth Grant, who in turn, uh, towards the end of Crowley's life, was very much, much associated with him, very closely with him. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, a person of great interest yeah i mean we're talking to someone that's two degrees of separation away from crowley exactly so yeah, yeah. Exactly so. there you go yeah um but yeah and, so and, and spare remember remember yeah and spare, and spare yeah. austin mm. osman spare yeah interesting yeah true true so we um we had Staley on the show um what a few months ago seems like a long time ago but mm. um I'm, I'm not very good at that kind of thing but we did like a kind of broad look at Kenneth Grant. Yeah, yes, that's right. Yes, and more yeah. looking at the biographical, looking at the man. Whereas today we're really like drilling into kind of the concepts and the uh, yeah, some of the the you know the core ideas that you will come across in in the the three trilogies of work. You know those books, starting with Magical Revival and ending with Ninth Arch. You know that so it, which span a huge period of time. I think uh, thirty years. I think. So. Yeah. It, was it what year was the magical revival? Seventy two. Was it? And the ninth arch was two thousand two. I think something okay, like that. Okay, somewhere around okay, there. Yeah. 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 So it's around. I think it's about thirty years. Thirty year period. Yeah. yeah. So. And quite a unique body of work. Mm-hmm. And and uh, yeah. And as its own unique take on things. Okay. Offered something unique to itself. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, um, enough of us waffling. Let's get into the show. Hello, Michael Staley. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Um, for those who didn't hear the first one, um, could you give us a reintroduction of yourself, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I've been interested in the occult for as long as I can remember. Um, and that kind of manifested itself through going through uh, a diversity um, of subjects. Uh, and then um, in the, I don't know, early late teens, early 20s, um, I uh, stumbled across reference to Alistair Crowley, because by now it, it was the mid-60s um, and he was having something of a revival. Um, and then I first came across Grant's work in the, in the late 60s and the Magic Revival in 1972. 
and I just gradually got more and more, more and more involved uh, with his work. I first met him about um, mid-70s, became a member of the order, um, became effectively his right-hand man in the order. Um, I, I know, I know, should be left-hand man, etc. Um, became his publisher um, in the uh, late 90s. Um, that's about it, really. Um, oh, I founded a magazine called Starfire, um, at Kenneth Grant's suggestion, actually. Um, in the early 80s, and uh, that ran for quite a few issues. It, I did have hopes at the beginning of it being six monthly, but it, it soon turned into an occasional magazine, and uh, I finally killed that off a few years ago, uh, simply because I, I don't know, I'd run out of enthusiasm for it, really. The last couple of issues, uh, I'd sort of felt, duty bound to bring them out and I, I don't think it's a very healthy way to feel actually so um, and so then well after Kenneth Grant's death in 2011 uh, myself and Stephanie Grant concentrated on bringing out second editions of the Typhonian trilogies um, and then um, I started bringing them out in well they sold out and a few years ago, I, uh, I reprinted them as both um, paperback and hardback, which uh, has definitely made Grant's work more accessible, I think. And uh, I've got lots more. I've got, I've got, now the Typhoon trilogies are back in print, I want to concentrate on um, previously unpublished stuff, in which there's a lot um, when it comes to Kenneth Grant. Um, it's one book, uh, this is a very selfish question, because <laughs> I'm, as you know, um, involved with a project at the moment, which we haven't announced yet, but um, I'm trying to get hold of Against the Light. Has that been, uh, is that out, out of print now currently? Or No, it's not out of print. It's, it's very easy to get hold of. You can find it on the Starfire Publishing website. Okay, brilliant. Oh, I'll, I'll, uh... And and kind of, if you do a PayPal order, that will come to me. I've heard it's quite autobiographical as well, uh, in a sort of... Yeah, although, you see, you have to be careful uh, when looking at Grant stuff in that way, because, because it's a novel, then, yes, there is a lot of biographical stuff, but there's a lot of Twilight stuff. I mean, Twilight in the sense of... And in the sense of it might be biographical, but then again, it might be embellished. I mean, you know, because it's a novel, you can't be sure. Yeah, true. Okay, so that's, I mean, in this, like last time we did a, a more of a broad biographical look at Kenneth Grant. Um, uh, and I think in this episode, I'd like to look more, like to drill in a bit more on the, uh, on the kind of um, concepts and, uh, ideas of, of, of you know some of the main concepts and ideas I'd say of, mm. of, of Grant and mm. um, metaphysical nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah. And one one term that constantly pops up is something called stellar wisdom. And I was wondering, could you explain why that's important? As, and it's important, I believe, to the Typhonian tradition as well. But why why that particular phrase is important? Yeah, um, I spent a lot. I spent a lot of time uh, pondering this, um, so I'll give you my interpretation. I mean, obviously, I can't discuss it with Kenneth for obvious reasons, but to my mind, stellar wisdom comports um, looking beyond the solar system. You know, 
stellar wisdom you can translate to my mind with um, the waste of it, the wastes of interstellar space. Um, it's just a way of looking. Well, it's just a way of if you take the solar system as being analogous um, to us, then it's just a way of looking further afield. I don't personally think there's anything more to it than that, but I, I could well be wrong. Another question I had, and actually a question we got from listeners as well, um, is did Grant consider himself to be a left-hand path practitioner? Yes, I think he, he would have done, but again, there's a, pro there's a bit of a problem here. And that problem really lies in definition. And when Kenneth uses the term left-hand path, um, in the foreword to Cults of the Shadow, he says that the left hand arises in that terminology uh, because it's the hand that the practitioner is on in relation to, to the Shakti. Uh, whereas actually you've got an awful lot of people these days um, who use it to indicate um, anything that's kind of... Um, a bit weird or sinister in Twilight, but I think I think Kenneth was only ever using it in that original, if you like, pristine sense of you know of having a specific definition uh, within Tantra. Yeah, I, I, I think in, in historically also it's a very marginalised, stigmatised, you know, phrase in you know term I suppose definition in Hinduism and so on. So I suppose it's it's meaning. We've had discussions before where we tried to pin exactly what what it, you know what people mean by that. I suppose what they do by it is more more to the point. I suppose. I know um, I've spoken to Nicholas Shrek about this quite a bit, and he um, he's, he gets quite irritated that the left hand path often gets kind of um, melded in with satanism and luciferianism oh, yeah. and and whatnot yeah. where actually the the two of them are, have nothing in common whatsoever and really it's it's more about kind of feminine forces isn't it Femi the feminine side of um of uh hindu mysticism I suppose. But, uh, but i suppose plainer devil's adequate then in, in i'm choosing i'm choosing i am i'm choosing <laughs> my words see what i did there <laughs> no i i suppose you're taking what is taboo and and uh foreboden and uh and regarded as unholy and unclean but by, by most people and then like turning it around you're turning it around you're or you'll you'll make a sacrament you're making a sacrament out of it it becomes it becomes a sacrament you know and lots of the my i in, in terms of satanism my my lots of my ideas lots of my <laughs> notions we call them that my notions come draw from the the sort of satan traditions of, of europe in the 1890s the satanism of um ropes and baudelaire and and that that kind of thing so um, which definitely um, take on those ideas and take what is forbidden. We're talking about you know late Victorian times where there were lots of China forces coming bubbling up into the unconscious and you know um, Oscar Wilde's The uh, Picture of Dorian Gray and um, uh, Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde the, that was written at that time. So it was a big ferment, big cauldron of uh, wickedness bubbling over especially in paris it was more than it is usually so yeah i mean kind of like the problem really with 
all of these things, you know, like sort of Ken, you brought up the term stellar wisdom a few minutes ago. Now we've got a left-hand path and so forth. And these things just aren't amenable to cut and dry definition. You know, um, they're taken by different people, different interest groups to indicate different things. And furthermore, with Kenneth Grant, you've got a further variation, which is that if you follow, if you follow, say, he provides a glossary at the back of every volume. And if you follow the same topic through, through the through say the nine gloss the nine glossary collections you do get some interesting variations and the real point there is that the item in the glossary refers to how he's used it in that book so you know ideas in general evolve as well don't they and and people's uses of words evolve and you know that's quite natural i think um you know you shouldn't i think it was foucault the philosopher said you should never hold someone to their you know you should always give some someone the right to change and adapt their their ideas kind of thing yeah especially when somebody has published work covers 30 years yeah exactly you'd be suspicious wouldn't you if they didn't yeah Okay, so obviously um, one of the major kind of god forms, for use of a better word, that Grant uh, was very interested in was uh, Set. And um, uh, he seems to, you know, Set's like a primal kind of force of chaos, isn't he? And interestingly, Typhon is as well. So did Grant have a kind of, um, you know, a, a love of this kind of chaotic kind of character, do you think? Yes, yes, I think he did. Although, you see, although you see, and again, this comes to um, the thing about definition. I mean, sort of Typhon, for instance. It it kind of really depends. Uh, I mean, sort of in Greek, Typhon, you know, does ind- indicate chaos. But in the sense that Gerald Massey was using it, for instance, it references um, the Great Mother, the bearer. Um, the genetrix, you know, so it, again, you know, these things change all the time. Um, as far as set is concerned, I think that he was referencing it more as a set of the borderlands, set of the wastes. Um, again, set tends to be used quite differently. In these in these days, by kind of um, uh, should we say, Satanists and Luciferian groups. Yeah, it's interesting. There's like the Temple of Set, isn't there? Um, who are, who sort of seem to have, or at least I always assumed had a satanic kind of bent. But when we actually interviewed Don Webb, he he said sort of said the same sort of thing that it kind of the. The character of of set seems to get kind of appropriated a little bit by kind of um, um, satanists doesn't it whereas I, I i didn't get the impression that that's what grant was referencing mm-hmm. yeah um yeah. so one of the things that interested me is that grant saw set as a kind of initiate an initiatory current that kind of flows through the um through the universe do you could you speak to that a little bit like the kind of connection between initiation and set it all depends really on what you mean by initiation and the only 
in <clears throat> my opinion, the only valuable initiation is self-initiation. Now, you asked me about, about Set in Grant, and he says somewhere that, that Set was the original deity uh, that he was strongly attracted to. Um, I don't think it's the deities that initiate, it's, it's the experience with the deity. And to my mind, uh, Set is much more um, much more about the outsider, um, borderlands, twilight, and I don't think that I don't think that if you encounter Set, uh, there would be a specific initiation coming from that. If you if you were gonna from your own, as much you you feel you you want to and you can, what 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 was your what is your experience of working with the Set archetype or the Set current or whatever you want to call it? Yeah, yeah, but I don't. Oh, I, I mean, Fair sort enough, of like, say, at least um, it's not anything that I would, that I would identify as set. Yeah, so the next topic, I kind of wanted to look at, um, this is going to be a bit more of a complicated one to discuss, I think, um, it's the mauve zone. Uh, oh. Obviously, this is, um, you know, obviously the topic of uh, one of the, you know, the title rather of one of uh, the Typhonian trilogies, but it seems to, what's interesting about the mauve zone is he seems to sort of refer to it prior to the um final trilogies but he doesn't seem to name it the mauve zone if you... no, quite so, quite so. Yeah. um the mauve zone you, uh, using that name that term uh didn't actually turn up until hector's fountain and it's and he used it quite a lot in hector's fountain but you're absolutely right it's there um in all of the previous stuff uh Kenneth defines the mauve, well, he defines it in, in various ways, actually. Um, but his, what you might call classic definition, is the area uh, between dreamless sleep and dreaming sleep. And uh, I take it, I take it to mean that the mozone is the region from which images and sense impressions arise. It's the region of creativity, of the creative impulse, of the of of the inspirational impulse um, that uh, the artists of, uh, in various media interpret in different ways. You know, I mean, it's not a question of channeling. You know, we 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 sort of mould the. The original impulse, but to my mind, that's what Mozone is. Is it? It's like sort of. It, if I'm getting this right, then uh, is it like the hypo uh, uh psychopompic like stages in sleep going in and out? Um, uh, I, I, I kind of like to take it back a, a deep, little bit, bit deeper. Uh, yeah. Where 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 Ken said um, that it was used. Uh, it, although not under that name, in the earlier books. And I think you find a, a, a really good instance of this um, in the Magical Revival, when he's talking um, about Lovecraft. And I don't know how well you recall that book, but in the chapter Barbarous Names, there is a very interesting table set out of the affinities 
between Lovecraft's work and Crowley's work. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, uh, and 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 Ken Ken speculates there um, that they've actually come from a common source, and uh, I think that common source is actually the region or the area from which images arise, from which inspiration arises. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, with Lovecraft, nobody suggests that that sort of that Lovecraft was a great makers, because he certainly wasn't. I mean, he remained a skeptic uh, throughout most of his life, actually. And if you read, if you read his, um, his published correspondence, you know, he's pretty withering um, about occultism and, and things like that. But to my mind, that is a classic, a classic example of what Kenneth meant by the Mozart. Yeah, I think like Grant, for example, he suggests there's a, a drawing in analogies between uh, the Great One and the Night of Time, which is the title for the the uh, the universe, uh, Trump, and also the Great Old Ones, and and, and so on. And uh, that, I remember that from the list. I know Grant gets a bit of a flack sometimes for the Lovecraft kind of connection sometimes, but I I genuinely think generally rather think that it's a kind of misinterpretation on the on the reader rather than the writer um to me it feels like he's saying that lovecraft is drawing from kind of like archetypes and uh and it's a useful it's a useful analogy almost a lot of the time you know you can use lovecraft's creations as a yeah as an archetype as a kind of you know something you know it it it's a fictional representation of things that magicians see, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 I think so. I, I think so too. I think it, it's kind of, it's puzzling if you think of us all as being individual, independent um, entities. Um, however, if you think in terms of the collective unconscious, cosmic conscious, uh, cosmic imagination, then so much of this becomes um, much more interesting. And when and when you work with the archetypes in a serious way, they you internalise them and they arise up in. Well, they they change you. You experience them. You immerse yourself in them, and they and they change you. They there's there's real change there. Mm. Yeah, I do think though. I do think though, to be honest, that much of the um, much of the criticism about Lovecraft. Uh, and his interpretation of Lovecraft that is levelled at Kenneth Grant, it's much more to do with um, with people seizing upon it um, as a way of kind of uh, beating up Kenneth Grant, if you like. I mean, for instance, uh, I sort of came across uh, a website called Goodreads the other day, and I started reading the reviews of Outer Gateways in there, and there was one there that just simply said, look, Lovecraft meets Crowley, you know, and you think, my God, have you read the book? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a bit more, <laughs> bit more in there than that. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you brought up an interesting phrase there, and we spoke about it last time we spoke, um, but we didn't really kind of cover it. Um, it's cosmic consciousness, and that's it. Seems to mean different things to different people depending on which kind of um, you know which. Uh, field you're into i suppose but what what would be the kind of kenneth grant take do you think on cosmic consciousness uh cosmic consciousness he would he would look at that um i feel quite sure um in terms of advice of vedanta um 
like that that sort of that we're not we're not a bunch of isolated in, uh, objects and so forth but um in fact we're sort of we're all sort of floating around in the ocean in the sea that well you know uh, if i'm if i may be so bold as to put words into his mouth um you probably wouldn't use anything quite as pathetic as my <laughs> analogy is floating around in the sea but um cosmic consciousness really is kind of consciousness beyond the individual the apparent individual i suppose it's got suggestions of that like the starly the stellar wisdom idea funny enough i mean uh, lovecraft he was a uh, like he was very interested in um, astronomy wasn't he and the stars oh, and, was. and that kind of thing he, he that meant a lot to him and um there's a like the there's a it's been suggested that the necromonican the book of dead names has owes something to the uh there's a roman book of, of astronomy called the astronomican and uh, the book mm. of stars, the, the star names to identify stars we've got at the time. So there's been sorts of uh, some Im influence there, some, some sort of some grain of uh, yeast, uh, which, is, which is given life to it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Now, another big thing that gets covered a lot, and I think often incorrectly by people, is um, this idea of the tunnels of set. Um, I was wondering, could you speak to the, you know, a, what are what is the tunnels of set? Um, and maybe we could look at kind of some of the, you know, the um, reflective purposes of it almost, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I suppose really the classic, um, the classic illustration of what Kenneth meant by the tunnels of set uh, might be considered to be the second part of Night's Song of Eden, which is to do with cliff off and sort of lays out um lays out say the cliff off of the various um of the, well of the various uh, paths and so forth interestingly enough uh you see if you read kenneth grant you get the impression that the tunnels are set um are terms for, I don't know, um, dreams, uh, areas of dreaming within, within the individual aspects of the unconscious. The interesting, the very interest, interesting thing about tongues of set, and I didn't realize it until about a year ago. Um, and I came across, I came across a book, um, by, an author whose name escapes me um, at the moment, very frustratingly, but um, I alighted on this paragraph where he was talking about the, t the tunnels of Set, and it, it becomes plain from his reference that the tunnels of Set was actually a term used by the ancient Egyptians. And that, 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 that staggered me actually coming across that because I had thought until then that the tunnels of Set were primarily a Kenneth Grant expression. Yeah, it's intriguing. Uh, I suppose that the phrase itself, I mean, I mean, what do I know? But the, the idea of a tunnel is something which is hidden underground. It's a, it's a sub, something sub, chthonic, subterranean. And uh, it's uh, my very simple understanding of the tunnels I say is that it's the kind of the, the other side, the revert, left hand, the, the shadow side of the tree of life. 
I mean, I, I mean, Grant is very, very uh, heavy on the Kabbalah, isn't it? Uh, and um, so it's that, it's that kind of... Um... Yeah, but you see, I mean, it's interesting from what you're saying there because, because from what you're saying, there is an overlay um, with the tunnel set and the areas of the clever. Yeah. Because, yeah. for instance, that's what that's what that second part of Nightside of Eden is all about, the cliff off. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you know, the sort of averse paths. Yeah, from, yeah. The, 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 the uh, yeah, the the shells, the husks, the husks, as hmm. uh, they're called, because uh, yeah, well, there's a whole reason why they're called that. I suppose it's supposed to be. Yeah, I'm not going to go into why, but. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe you should. Well, I mean, the, the idea is that, like in in the Kabbalah, so you have uh, you have uh, God, well, the divine, call it what, the cosmic consciousness, call it whatever you like, is both uh, transcendent, infinitely transcendent in Kether, and intimate in Malkuth in the kingdom, and there are like these stages in between, you know. So how do you get to one to the other? How can how can the divine experience be here in this present moment in the here in everyday world and at the same time you know in the infinite infinite unknowable um and infinitely distant in the metaphysical sense spiritual sense i know you don't like them no. yeah, that but uh, but we, we've got they're all clumsy they're all very clumsy terms and kind, um, of like, kind of like with all due respect um how that might come about is is kind of irrelevant because that's the way it is you know and it's not rational but that's the way it is i'm afraid uh, one thing i've just noticed in general with grant is he doesn't um seem to kind of exp he doesn't give you the uh often the technical details of how to access certain um no, he, doesn't. he, he doesn't he's he he's what you might call very light Mm. on the practicalities. I mean, I'll give you, for instance, um, in 1980, when Outside the Circles of Time came out, I was intrigued by the several references in there um, to Salvador Dali's um, paranoid critical um, method. But there wasn't anywhere um, any definition or or, or or anything to say what this meant, you know, let alone um, how it might be used. And of course, now it's much easier because you can look it up on Google and um, references um, on Google will tell you that basically it's all about um, perceived links between objects um, and those links are not rational and so forth. And and sort of once you know that you can spot you can spot several elements in Grant where he is actually using that um, primarily I, I suppose his um, his kind of really heavy overloaded use of gematria because of course you know, because of course gematria is an outstanding example of perceived links between objects whereby those links just aren't rational. You know, I mean, if you open up any geometrical dictionary, such as um, such as Crowley's Sephiroth, then you know, for uh, for any number, you might have say half a dozen completely different definitions 
and and there appears to be certainly from a, a rational point of view uh, little to no connection between uh, these terms that share the same number. Obviously, Grant doesn't talk about d directly how to access uh, the tunnels of set, for example, or how he went about accessing the tunnels of set. But has there well, has there ever been any kind of instructions or third party books or any any? Well, yeah, I mean. Basically, in the second part of Night Side of Eden, he does actually he does he he does actually sort of set out um, as far as he's ever going to um, enough information for you to be able to um, access uh, that tunnel set. He doesn't. It feels like he didn't complete it though in the in the Night Side of Eden. It, it, he doesn't go through the entire range of cliff off, does he? He seems to. It does. Oh, well, maybe. Well, well, it kind of depends, really, Ken, on, on what you mean by entire range of cliff off. I mean, he's just sort of he's just setting out the the twenty two, the the averse twenty two parts. Mm. Um, it might well be that there are sort of that there's a lot more uh, hosts of cliff off than that. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, so, I suppose he, in a way, he's covering the necessary ones for the work he's discussing i'm guessing in that no, yeah yeah my name is legion i suppose i mean he does present he does uh he does give us a, a series of, of, of sigils though so you know there's mm. a there's a key there and there's all sorts of ways you can you know meditate on them and obsessively draw them and then you know and then and record yeah. your dreams and then and it's, eventually yeah, it will get in there He's drawn those sigils though from um, from Crowley work. Um, in, and in fact, in fact, uh, in fact, that second part of Nightside of Eden is a perfect example of taking taking someone else's work and kind of and developing it. Mm. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Using it, using it um, in much wider and deeper fashion than they ever would have thought. Yeah, it's. Um, I know we spoke about this before, um, but it is interesting to me. The way I always see Grant is he's sort of doing almost what Crody did with the Golden Dawn, in that he's taking, you know, the the work of Crody, but then also adding in work from other sources and then pushing that out um, as a as a more his version, I suppose, or not even his version, an evolution of. Um, of the magical current of the time. Would you agree with that? Or have I gone too yeah, far with that? <laughs> yes. No, no, no. I, I would largely, but I'd kind of go a little bit further than that myself. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether we, whether we touched on this um, in our previous interview, but um, Henry Bogdan brought out a collection of essays called uh, Servants of the Star and the Snake. And there's an essay by Martin Starr in there and in, in the course of the essay, um, he, he refers to bricolage, um, which is, if you like, a patchwork quilt, uh, a, a diversity of influences. I personally think that Kenneth, it goes a little bit further uh, with Kenneth. It's more synthesized than just the patchwork quilt, if you know what I mean. He, 
he sort of took in a variety of things and just kind of just kind of um, transformed them um, by his own experience. You know, uh, I mean, Typhonian tradition is it, a classic one, really. I mean, what Kenneth calls a Typhonian tradition um, probably wouldn't have have been that familiar to um, Gerald Massey. But Kenneth, 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 Kenneth takes something, assimilates it, and makes it his own. Um, so, for instance, um, when it comes to spare, you're not going to get what you might call an objective survey of spare. He will quite happily ignore aspects of spare that don't interest him and take and further develop aspects of spare that, that does interest him. And of course, you know, we all do that to some degree anyway. Yeah. I mean, for instance, you know, I'm very, I'm extremely fond of Nietzsche. I find his work um, fascinating, but there are, there are areas of Nietzsche that don't interest me at all. They just kind of leave me cold. I mean, that well-known phrase, uh, uh, you go to women, do not forget the whip. Well, yeah, I, I kind of, that, that sort of thing, I don't really care for very much. And so I just ignore it. And um, yeah. I, mean, I think we all do that. You know, there's no, there's no need to take on board absolute everything yeah. um, by, by, say, an author whose work you get a great deal out of because you do get a great deal out of his work then um if you've got any common sense you will actually you will actually look at the stuff that you you don't like and try and understand it and so forth but yeah. um if at the end of the day you still don't well you know there you are you can sign it to room 101 as it were yeah. and i think that's just that's not just natural i think that's the way it ought to be really yeah, I suppose. Uh, yeah, if you do, if you do it with in honestly and and open with integrity, I think that 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 can work. And um, funny enough, uh, Nietzsche does recommend actually uh, uh, writing down your thoughts on waking, um, and he's he's, he's, he's pre Freud as well. So the, it's interesting how he sort of suggests snatching out those those thoughts you have on on the. On the cusp of thing of uh, unconsciousness of waking and yeah, because they disappear very quickly. Yeah, yeah. When he went to uh, he he saw when he went to see Mount Etna, which uh, of course Zeus flung on top of uh, Tython, and he's still there rumbling away. <laughs> um, he 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 felt that he was influenced very much by the the the. In, by, in some kind of way that he doesn't really explain, but uh, he was influenced <laughs> somehow by the the uh, by the mountain. He upset his uh, system. So make about that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, so and uh, night side forces is another thing that um, uh, seems to be quite important to Grant, but also I think is also quite important to the, t the current Typhonian tradition. Um, uh, could you speak to um, what nightside forces actually are, uh, because that's... yes, certainly. certainly. I think personally, nightside forces is is quite simply the forces of the unconscious. I mean, that's that's actually when when I say the unconscious, I'm not meaning the personal unconscious. Uh, I'm meaning you know 
um, wider, wider unconscious. And so, you know, dark forces, the night side forces, um, that's what they are. They're things that, I mean, all of us, all of us, we've got things um, that we that, that we repress or that we actually uh, cast to one side, not cast to one side, but keep the lid on. And I think that applies also um, to beyond the individual. That seems to echo uh, Jung a little bit as well, like mm. encountering the shadow mm. self and you know the importance of working with that shadow self for you know personal development um or you know uh dealing with yeah and making friends with it and uh, acknowledging it yes yeah um that brings that brings us back to uh, the picture of dorian gray and uh, dr jekyll <laughs> and mr hyde which was written amazingly you know long before the idea of the shadow in the union sense was yeah. was you know was was voiced interesting but um one thing that always seems to crop up when especially if you look online when it comes to night side forces is is this idea of like non-human entities um and that's something that grant sort of touches upon and i think it's one of the reasons uh, we discussed this recently um one of the reasons why grant is having somewhat of a renaissance with the uh i, I guess they call themselves the uap community these days or ufo community is that there's this idea of um a kind of non-human trans-dimensional kind of entity as well that grant seems to grant seems to touch on fairly regularly in his books but are you, are you saying that that's not like a an ultra terrestrial would be the word that is the mm. you know the word that's used these days or are you saying it's more of a, an internalized thing um no i mean i mean you know as far as i'm concerned the issue is quite simple, actually. I mean, I mean, at one time, hundreds of years ago, um, it was thought that <clears throat> it was thought that the Earth was the most important thing in the universe, and that everything else just kind of circled the Earth. But they really weren't very much more than just kind of things that been stuck in the heavens and. Uh, and that was it. Now, now, of course, we know that we are, as you know, using the well-known phrase "amir pinprick" in eternity, and that, and that, and that, the more powerful our telescopes become, the more we realise that there are these vast, vast areas in the universe. And if there's life out there, then obviously it's going to be non-human. Mm. And there's bound to be life out there somewhere. Bound to be life out there, you know, a place, a place that just teems with um, with galaxies and with suns and with planets um, around them. You know, we're not we're not going to be we're not going to be we're not going to be alone. And um, I suppose the other aspect. I suppose the other aspect of non-human is, you know, are we sure we're human? I mean, Alan Greenfield is um, well known for this kind of theory. This uh, in his book, uh, Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, he talks about. Obviously, he's a, a former OTO member, himself, uh, you know, himself, and uh, um, he talks about this idea that there's a 
some kind of link between you know occult practices like ritualistic practices and these kind of ultra terrestrial entities and i think the the big question that a lot of people are kind of looking at at the moment is is this an alien you know i'd say that with in air quotes um entity yeah, yeah, yeah like the extra extraterrestrial hypothesis isn't it so it's like nuts and bolts spaceships or ufos uh flying you know from with a little green well or little purple creatures in them, or from another planet, or is it, or is it something more, um, more transcendental in nature, or sort of more, more? I personally would go with. I personally would go with the latter, actually. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of in agreement there. <laughs> but uh, there does seem to be. I mean, um, there does seem to be a lot of work. I mean, especially earlier. I've been looking a lot at um, kind of pre-Islamic Middle Eastern work a lot at the moment um, of myths and kind of tales and of their kind of, you know, their magic. Um, they wouldn't have, well, they actually, they would have called it something different, but it's basically magic. But they often seem to imply in, in and this is like, you know, over a thousand years ago, um, but they seem to imply the same thing that it's um, by doing these magical rituals, something appears, you know, something manifest appears and grant definitely seemed to also think that <laughs> so yeah, like, he, he draws attention to the to the, the fact that the year that uh crowley passed 1947 was the same year the the, the, the phrase ufo was coined and the very yes, famous yes. and the very famous uh ufo report uh, i mean at the time it was the, the, the sort of take on it was that it was some kind of um uh, aircraft from I don't know a, a new technology coming from Russia or somewhere like that, but uh, uh, over the years it sort of uh, it sort of changed into something else. And if you think about the the plethora of the UFO idea or the the, the visitor from outer space, which isn't I mean it, it 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 just it became very fertile during the like the forties and fifties in all sorts of different ways and uh, but of course it's much older i mean um hg wells um uh, war of the worlds which is the very first in in, in literature the sort of narrative of, of visitors from another world mars in this case and that's 1890 1898 i think so you know that's pretty that's pretty early and that sort of really caught the imagination the, uh, the imagination of uh of the, of the world actually. yeah but you see this thing, though, um, about seeing, I mean, the nearest that I've come to it was uh, in the late 80s. Um, I performed for the best part of a year and on a daily basis um, a Crowleyan um, thing called uh, Reguli. And towards the end of that, you know, I did have the sense, well, I read afterwards, somebody described it as, oh, Reguli calls forth creatures of the swamp. And as soon as I read that description, I knew exactly, exactly what they meant. I didn't see anything, but I did have some very strange experiences in those final weeks. But the thing is, the thing is that if something were to manifest, I mean, you know, A, would you recognize it? Would you see it? You know, um, and, and, and sort of B, I sort of happen to believe that we wander around wearing blinkers for most of the time. And so, you know, you sort of just wouldn't see it. Uh, 
for instance, if you start to practice anything with magic and mysticism, you find an awful lot of synchronicities and coincidences um, are occurring. And I sort of happen to think that these coincidences and synchronicities are occurring all you know all the time, but you normally don't notice them because you kind of get locked into this kind of observational straitjacket. You very large, you very largely you see what you expect to see. Yeah, and we've kind of sort of self-conditioned ourselves, and also you could say that society's conditioned ourselves. It seems that. Um... At least the older you go with texts of this of this nature, the more people seem to notice them, this sort of stuff. And it almost feels like modern society's sort of switched us, switched parts of our brains off that seem to be active yeah. a lot more, um, you know, in the, uh, you know, pre-modern. Yeah. They, they probably weren't, weren't sort of as rational as we are. That's the thing. I think, I think it's kind of like, say, if, if, if something astounding happens, then it, it's very, very easy to uh, explain it away or invent things or in the final analysis, it actually becomes uh, an illusion or, or something like that. It's rationality really that is, um, rationality is a very useful thing, but if you're not careful, it, uh, it just cuts off so much. Yeah, the imagination in particular. The, um, mm. It does seem to be in the occult world generally. I, I was talking to Ulysses Black about this the other day. Um, that there was this sort of move to sort of make um, occultism as as respected as science um, in a way. Um, and one of the things that seemed to have been kind of chopped off uh, in that process was the this kind of connection between, I guess, the paranormal and the occult, or the supernatural mm. and the occult. And I often wonder if the fact that, um, you know, the, I often wonder if, the, if they've thrown the, ba the baby out with the bathwater a little bit there, that actually there could have been some quite interesting, uh, far more interesting um, kind of uh, work done on those on those connections. And that definitely, again, Grant seemed very interested in that connection, the sort of... Um, the kind of magical and the paranormal or the magical especially yeah magical and sort of non-human well, entities yeah and also if you look at Jung I mean you know a very respected <laughs> psychoanalysis I understand you know he, he 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 has all sorts of experiences which don't fit into the conventional idea of what the normal world should be like and he doesn't this you know well this is what people you know the, an archetype doesn't just mean a symbol it's a living thing and there's something beyond that which we 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 don't know, we got, which aside, which he says himself. Well, I'm just a, you know I'm just a psychologist. What do I know? I can't talk about that. And he and he has, you know, I don't like the word supernatural, but he has those experiences. And uh, and I've I've had some myself as well. So, you know, um, much as I hate the word, <laughs> we come up with another word. Well, the paranormal is an attempt at that, and. Um, meaning mm. something slightly different like parallel to us parallel to the normal everyday well that's a bit closer to it but they're they're all clumsy words they're all clumsy. They're but they're words. also stigmatized don't they oh yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's the problem yes yeah, oh yeah the whole thing's yeah. and i think maybe um because that that kind of barrier is starting to break down that one of the reasons grant might be becoming more successful again at the moment is because people are more willing to um explore those ideas now whereas before people were yeah. far more closed off yeah. and trying to be by the book kind of you know a, a cult is a 
the occult is a you know like a scientific like endeavor it's not um you know it's it's, it's, a, it's a balance between that intuition and and uh, you know reason and we need both we need we need you know i need my right leg and my left leg to walk or, you know i'm not going to get anywhere i could hop about but i wouldn't get it it'd be better if i had both legs basically <laughs> you know if you want to run for a bus yes you're probably vital but you know we need those and then in the, and then there's theories about the evolution of consciousness you know where we go where we're we're like animals pure instinct and then then as our self-awareness became more pronounced there's like this sort of divorce between our intuition and, and feelings the instinctive self mm-hmm. the unconscious self and then the conscious waking rational self and then you know and that's and the all the all the neurosis and psychosis of the of of everyday life you know is 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 sort of remedy to some extent by those those two things coming back together again um going back to um this one last point on the on the night side forces because i've I've just been reading about this again recently so it's, it's in my mind um grant talks about night sight forces as a catalyst for trans- transformation um i was wondering could you explain what he means by that yeah um i think when you when he's when he's calling it um a catalyst for transformation i think i think that he's talking about being a catalyst for uh transformation of your understanding of your insights of your initiation if you like I'm aware that when I say things like this, it might come across as saying, oh, you know, these things are subjective, not objective. What you get in Kenneth Grant, and not just in Kenneth Grant, in other authors as well, is that there isn't really, there isn't really that divide between subject and object. So that, for instance, in what you're asking about there, Ken, um, in, um, in these things being um, a catalyst for transformation. You know, although it might appear to be just a catalyst for transformation of you, I mean, there is essentially at the end of the, at the, end of the day no you other than in a transient uh, passing fashion. Mm. Uh, I know that, I'm sorry that, that that is rather a clumsy way of putting it, I know, mm. but... The problem is when you're talking uh, about something that is beyond the categories of subject and object, because language is founded on the subject and object, mm. it, it's just just impossible mm. to talk other than in terms of inference. Yeah. I mean, what I've found useful is, is the way I try, try to I've developed thinking about it is that you have the, if you have like the, the sea and the, and the shore, you have the sea which is inconstant and hidden and vast it's unimaginably and then you have the hard land the pebbly land which is far more tangible and if you walk on it you can your feet hurt and so on and then there's that as the waves come up and down on the shore there's that sort of liminal space that were you know which is neither you know neither sea nor shore and and the human experience is occupied there and we we're making it we're we're, we're negotiating that 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 piece of land and uh, well we do it every i mean every night we go to sleep i mean the you know the unconscious is is much a part of our our lives as as our everyday waking self and you know and the word yeah that's pretty much what i was trying to say yeah um 
I, I, we we want to do a show with you. I want to talk about a little bit about one of Grant's kind of collaborators or influencers, I suppose. Uh, well, both. Um, uh, Michael Bertio. But obviously, the, the obvious one to talk about as well would be Spare. But because we want to do another show with you about Spare, we'll skip Spare for now. <laughs> um, and I'd just like to talk about Bertio. And kind of Bertio comes in, is it Nightside of Eden? Is that where he first comes no. No, 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 he's not my side. He first comes in in Cults of the Shadow. Oh, it's Cults of the Shadow, yeah, that's right. Cults of the Shadow, yeah. And that's because and um, that's because he and Kenneth made uh, written contact um, whilst Amsterdam Hidden God was still at the printers. Okay. So, so he first makes an appearance in Cults of the Shadows. And... Um, I suppose that the net, that the next major chunk of Bertio is in uh, Hector's Fountain, because there's a whole section in there on what Kenneth terms, well, he's using a Bertio term, something like Zephyrian Gnosis. Mm. Yeah, actually, interestingly, um, Zephyrian Gnosis is what I was going to uh, uh, ask you to talk about, um, because... Um, yeah, I'm afraid actually, uh, I really don't feel competent to talk about that. Oh, okay. Is that that's something I should ask Bertio probably? <laughs> it's, it's I'm quite sure you're. I'm sure you're being very modest. <laughs> <laughs> no, modesty is not one of my vices. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about. I mean, we've mentioned Typhon earlier, but I think obviously another major part of Grant's work and then post grant is the typhonian tradition itself and the typhonian order um what is the roots of the term typhon obviously there's the, you know the greek but why did um why did uh grant sort of identify or what what did he see yeah. in typhon it's not really it's not really the greek typhon at all uh the term typhonian the term, term typhonian tradition comes from Massey. Um, and Massey's vast works, uh, what you might call an explication of the Typhonian tradition. Now, Kenneth Grant first came across Gerald Massey in 1948 at the Museum of the British Museum, you know, and became absolutely fascinated by his work. But as with so many other things, um, Spare, uh, Bertio, whatever, really, um, Weihinger, you know, the guy who, who wrote the, the philosophy of as if. Uh, Kenneth re, Kenneth's ob objective really was to assimilate and then to develop it further, which is why uh, I made that remark uh, a while back that probably if Gerald, if Gerald Massey got hold of his time machine and... Um, and read kind of stuff, he very possibly wouldn't recognise very much of the Typhonian tradition as he understood it um, in there. But Kenneth is using the term Typhon in the sense that Massey used it, which is the genetrix, the, the great goddess, the bearer, the great bearer, if you like. A lot of people seem to relate Typhon when they're talking about Grant again it sounds like incorrectly um they are often linking it to the greek typhon so greek typhon. Yeah, yeah so that's interesting that it's um it's i have noticed that actually i mean i don't sort of 
when I come across it, I don't correct people because, you know, who am I to do so? Um, but I, you know, I, I, I do firmly believe that both he and Massey, as I say, referencing um, Typhon the Genetrix. Yeah, so the, the, mag- the, 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 the sort of Magna Mater. From the ancient Egyptian traditions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in terms of uh, the ty- how much of the in Grant's later life, um, how much, how much work did he put into the Typhonian tradition? Was it like a, did it become like a his main kind of focus, or it seemed well, Typhonian tradition. I mean, to be honest, Typhonian tradition is is something at the roots of Kenneth's work. You know, it, so he would see he, he would see his he would see his whole work as expounding the Typhonian uh, tradition, but he he would he would he would have no no interest really in acting as a scholar and kind of sticking to what Massey delineated and so forth. But uh, he would develop develop it because he had no use for dead things he had no use for he had no use for things that couldn't be developed uh to use your earlier term couldn't be transformed couldn't be catalyzed yeah that's interesting do you think that towards the end of his life maybe that he was moving sort of past crowley a little bit as well or do you think that crowley was still you see you see the interesting thing um i mean i came I came to spare quite late, relatively late in my life. But uh, when I started really getting into spare, uh, it seemed to me, it seemed to me that that spare was was actually the biggest influence on Kenneth and not Crowley. But for some reason, for some reason, it's Crowley that is the one that's kind of referenced um, almost all the time. Um, even in Kenneth's, even in Kenneth's later works, and, and, and uh, he did actually. I mean, he had this huge admiration for Crowley, whilst at the same time not being afraid um, to indicate those areas of Crowley, those areas of Crowley's work uh, in which he'd got no interest. You know, and, um, and you know, there's kind of lots of lots of such interest. Really, I mean, he wasn't particularly interested in. Uh, Crowley's um, Crowley's poetry he wasn't much interested in uh, Crowley's brand of homosexual sex magic, for instance, things like that. Um, he wasn't much interested in what in what he would have seen and described as Crowley's um, solophallic uh, preoccupations. Mm. You know the, the way that he saw because. Uh, the paradox about Crowley is that in some ways he was kind of, he, for such a feminist man, he'd got this kind of conception of manhood. And it kind of almost runs really to seeing men as being superior to women. Mm. You know? And the male current being superior to the female current. Mm. Yeah. Which of course, um, a, a friend of mine always refers to, when women are used in Crowleyan rituals as fleshlights with a pulse, which I thought was quite. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you even employed the term "used" there, and that does pretty well cover it. You do sometimes, you do, you do sometimes get the impression with these 
that as far as Crowley was concerned, you know, uh, the vagina was there to function as a cup mm. yeah. for the male semen. You know, and it was, it was the male semen that was the, um, the be-all and end-all. I mean, I'm being a little. I'm being. I'm being a little bit unfair to Crowley, really, because he, after all, he did talk about the mixed sacrament and about the fusion of the male and female fluids. What's interesting is that you're saying about the the being a cup for the semen. Interestingly, Grant kind of flips that a little bit, doesn't he? Um, where he's talking about the carlas and how that that becomes the more kind of vital fluid as it were in in you know in in, ma in his magical work at least he, he seems yes yeah so that's kind of interesting and do you think i mean this is just me guessing here but do you think because grant had a kind of constant quite strong feminine force in his life in steffi that perhaps that might have influenced his take on um on, on all of this kind of stuff do you think it might be because i know i don't Really, I mean, I, I mean, sort of, I know what you mean, but no, no, I don't. I mean, for instance, um, no, I mean, I was about to say, I mean, Steffi came along in about 41, which possibly 42, 41, 42. Um, I mean, she was, she 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 was a very forceful woman. There is no doubt at all about that. But I don't no, I I don't think that influence, um, for instance, his perception of the, the Carlos as being, you know, sort of um the prime the prime force. And talking about stuff. It's an interesting thought, Ken. Yeah, no, it, was, it was just came out of the ether. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, talking about Steffi, we, we spoke last time about how she's, you know, quite underrated, in my opinion, in the kind of Grant story. She's, I, I'd yeah. say she's, you know, pretty high. What was her kind of, obviously, she, originally she wasn't as um, interested in magic as Kenneth was, initially, um, at least. But did her kind of... Um, kind of interest in magic and kind of participation in magic change over the years or uh well i mean the the interesting thing about stephanie is that towards the end of her life um because she came over 1938 1939 from berlin because her family had to flee the nazis um i asked her expecting confidently expecting you know to say yes. I asked her if she'd been interested in the occult um, before she came over here, and she said no. And I find that quite extraordinary because if you look at the sort of things that she was drawing and painting in those early years, you know, um, they have they have you know, for an occult theme, and it, it astonished me that they they came from somebody whose whole life hadn't been steeped in the occult. But I sort of personally think it's the case that she encountered Kenneth Grant and it just touched something. It just, just unleashed something. Mm, yeah. She might not have been interested in the occult, but it sounds like the occult was interested in her. And uh, Yeah, I think it's a good one. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it triggered off that, you know, it planted a seed. 
well, I mean, they had a relationship, you know, they were in love, you know, I'm so, you know, there was a love there. So, you know, that, that love trans is a transformative thing. And if you've been with somebody he was with her all his life, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, uh, I do agree though with what you're saying, Ken, that she is very, very underrated. I mean, um, for instance, she wrote, I mean, as you know, the Carfax monographs, uh, you'll have, um, a piece of artwork by Steffi in there, um, together with um, a short essay and so forth. And basically, she wrote about half of the essays that are in there, and some of them are astonishingly good. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I... And she, she's a very good writer, very good writer. I mean, she wrote that she wrote that long introduction to Zoss Speaks, for instance. Um, and it's just one of the best pieces of writing that I've ever come from. Obviously, uh, thank you again for giving us some more of your time. And I just wanted to celebrate the fact with you that you've uh, the Ninth Arch is, is is finally out and available for people to to pick up now. And mm -hmm. does it? Uh, it must feel quite good to have the full trilogy, three trilogies, back out again. Uh, yes, it is. Although, although basically, um, the one that, the one that hasn't joined the reprints is Outer Gateways, mm. um, which the 2015 second edition is is actually still in print. Uh, that's that's actually not because um, be, that's not actually because it's not popular. What happened was that in 2017, uh, most of our books were stored in this warehouse that was burnt to the ground. Yeah. And um, it just so happened that I had never put any copies of Outer Gateways into store. And that was just totally inadvertent. They were there, it, they were there in my garage in its entirety. So therefore, whereas all, whereas all the other titles lost quite a lot of books in that fire, Outer Gateways didn't. And so... That explains it because I, I noticed that the typesetting is slightly different on Outer Gateways to the other books. To the I always thought, I assumed it was a reprint, so, but it's the it's the second it's the second print then. That's it's the second edition. Yeah. So what? Obviously, you've got these out. Are, are you going to redo Outer Gateways then as well, or are you going to? Yes, yes, uh, I, I will do, but um, I'm going to wait until until it's out of print. Mm. Um, I'll be, I'll be very surprised. No, I mean, I'll be a bit surprised if it hasn't sold out by the end of the year. Yeah, and then. But yes, it it will be it will be reprinted in the hardback paperback mix. Mm. And you were talking about um, releasing some more arcade books as well. I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Or yeah, sure. Um, this is something by Henrik Bogdan. It's going to extend to several volumes and it's kind of basically the collected works of Uckard. And volume one, volume one will actually consists of uh, what Henrik's identified as the three major works, which are uh, QBL, uh, the Egyptian revival, and the anatomy of the body of God. Um, and then the book's been delayed um, due to various circumstances um, in Henrik's and my my own life. 
Antonio. But um, the, the typesetting of the three books has been done, you know, through three in one. Um, in fact, in the vast majority of it has been done, and, and I'm just waiting for the, uh, the introduction to be finished. Um, I'm, I would very much like that to be out by the end of this year. Oh, excellent. I'll, I will fall upon those with relish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> excellent. And the um, other thing you were talking about were letters from Kenneth Grant in a volume. Yeah, uh, yeah. Again, again, that's something that I started quite a long time ago. And at the beginning of this year, I picked up, <coughs> I started doing the editing. Uh, when I say editing, I mean, uh, I hasten to add what I mean by that is just kind of. Um, adding footnotes, uh, making uh, very, very occasional um, change in punctuation, things like that. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't sort of edit in the full sense of taking out paragraphs or changing and stuff like that. Um, again, uh, I'd like to have that out by the end of this year, uh, the first volume. Uh, this first volume, it's going to run up. It's going to run up to either probably going to be the end of 1954, um, be, simply because I'd rather not end up with another book the size of um, the Ninth Arch mm. or even the Incoming of Ian Mark. I think both of those books are are kind of on the, are just on the wrong side of being unwieldy. Yeah, the hefty tomes, aren't they? Both of them. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, anyway, thank you so much for giving us some more of your time, and um, we're going to have your next time to talk about uh, Austin Osborne's Spare. So that'll be a, something for our listeners to look forward to. Um, but yeah, thanks, thanks so much yeah, again. Yeah, your, your your time really means a lot to us, and uh, and your insights are you know valuable, and and uh, and I, so, I I hope I hope well I know that people watching this will will, will, will regard that. So. And we are back. It's always great to talk to Michael Staley, and it's a subject that I find particularly interesting. Um, you know, anything that kind of grows upon, um, you know, because we're both big fans of Alistair Crowley, obviously, as well, but uh, anything that kind of grows and evolves and mutates those kind of ideas, I, I personally find particularly yeah, interesting. It, it witnesses to the vitality of the current, doesn't it, of mm. the work, that um, it, it can go off in these interesting uh fertile sort of directions and uh, yeah 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 you like you like that phrase witness to the i do it's a phrase <laughs> i've used before <laughs> on the show several times <laughs> let's think okay well let's think of another way to put that uh it it uh testifies <laughs> it no it, it tests oh you can mock it test it does you can it, it testifies to the uh, the potency of the current there we are there we go there we go there we are well you you could well they can judge they've seen it themselves now people are you know the people in podcast land and they can judge for themselves so there we go yeah well tell us which which phrase phraseology you prefer i'm sure that they <laughs> they they uh, well well I, i'm not going to say anymore that's it that's hundreds it. of emails. That's I'm it. sure we'll get hundreds of emails. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there we are. The Mo Zone will speak to it. Speak, speak to those for itself. That's <laughs> it. 
Anyway, you can find us online everywhere at Sitting Now, all the usual social media. We're now on TikTok. I don't understand TikTok. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm old. Uh, it seems like a young man's game, but we put a, a clip up of our last interview with Richard Kretz, and I'll keep putting kind of clips up there, I think, and uh, maybe the odd little you know, nugget of uh, extra mm. extra bit and bob. Bit mm. and bob? Extra bits and bobs. And uh, we'll, uh, you know, see how it goes on there. But it seems to be, you know, people seem yeah. interested in it. So, yeah, it's all, you know, it's all bringing people towards us, like a, yeah, yeah. our uh, tentacles are going well, out. Well, and... I mean, if, if something in, in today's podcast speaks to you, and then you can take that, no matter all it is, and it leads something to... Uh, something positive or something some change in the real world then that is the, the that's the vital work yeah so yeah join us on at sitting now we'll be back on monday i believe uh no tuesday sorry tuesday uh with our next episode um which will be with mark jacobson the author of the amazing pale horse rider a book all about william cooper the og kind of dark conspiracy theorist the 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 prequel to Alex Jones. It's like we're going, we're like George Lucas going back to the, uh, you know, before the uh, the big hit that is Alex Jones with some people. Um, but yeah, no. So that's going to be an interesting one. So if you're interested in kind of conspiracy culture before it went really dark, um, even though he, William Cooper is quite dark, um, then then you you're not going to want to miss that episode. And we will see you next week. 